thanks everyone for joining uh and look dive into the chat uh leave us some comments where we're going to have lots of time at the end for for questions and answers and we'd like to make this quite informal and quite um and, and have a good quality conversation together so let me start by introducing ralph uh so about 12 years ago when i was the head of safety uh in an oil and gas company um about one week into the job uh my ceo said oh um this fellow ralph shreve is coaching our whole leadership team and i'd like you to be um i'd like him to be your executive coach um and i thought what a great opportunity and uh and so for about three years uh ralph was my coach and at this time we just commenced a 25 billion dollar oil and gas mega project and we started to very quickly have some very serious and very frequent safety challenges and um it was really ralph that that coached me to read a sort of review and redefine the way that I thought about safety connected me to with a lot of contemporary safety ideas and was that really the inspiration, uh, Ralph was the inspiration for me to go and then continue to explore that and do my PhD and um, and that's where we are today and got the opportunity to, uh, to acquire Ralph's, uh, well, consulting, change consulting and training business last year and um, have him come on board as a, as a partner in Safety Futures. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today when we get a little bit into it is uh, is our latest uh, view on creating a safe system of work through frontline leadership and supervision. And it's the result of a, of a series of programs over the last decade um, that have been delivered to more than 10,000 operational and frontline leaders. So um, Ralph, thanks for joining today. Um, over to you. Uh, hi, David. So um, and thank you, Sarah, for the, the introduction. Um, so beyond that, the really important thing to understand about David is he's got a lot of operational experience. And so particularly important as we're seeing increasingly and correctly that the focus is on the work itself. Um, and I'm sure many of you have got practical experience of coaching. And the great thing about coaching is that if if you if you really are listening to the person you're coaching, you're probably learning as much about uh, their world um, as they're learning from you. And I certainly learned a lot from David, and uh, it actually inspired me not to do a PhD, um, but but to actually go and do a master's and look at, um, at activity theory as a mechanism for improving safety. So a direct focus on the work system, which is a very useful way of looking at it. And as David and I started to work together operationally, we discovered something that I would urge all of you to, to do in your own careers. Um, partner with operations. You, you get a safety professional um, partnering with an operations professional. Both of them benefit, and the organization benefits tremendously because safety improvement initiatives and operational improvement initiatives need to be designed and executed in lockstep. So really important part of our ongoing successful working relationship is that David is a highly skilled safety professional and is very operationally focused. And I'm perhaps not quite so highly skilled operations professional, um, but I'm very safety focused. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today, a lot of the tools that we'll talk you through are actually developed based on merging operational experience with safety experience. So not just knowledge, the practical experience of putting this stuff in the field. 
So, um, David, back to you. Okay. Um, great, Ralph. When you say not very skilled, um, I do often say that there's uh, 60 years of operational experience between uh, the two of us, and I've only been working for 20. So, um, <laughs> um, very good. So, look, let's let's talk about let's talk about what's happening in safety and safety leadership and operations at the moment. And I'm sure this sort of a this sort of a diagram will be very familiar to many of you. Um, human and organizational performance, safety to uh, resilience engineering, high reliability organizations have been looking at uh, concepts around work as imagined, work as done. So those terms should be very familiar to everyone, how we think that work happens and how that compares to how work uh, does happen. And these ideas about performance variability and adaptation and how we balance the standardization and reliability of work with the need to constantly vary work as the situation changes. How we defer to protocol versus how we defer to expertise and how we know where the margins of safety are and where the um, next incident will emerge with some level of foresight. So these ideas, all of that description I've just given is kind of the messy fog of safety and operations uh, as we like to talk about it. And we can all understand that. I'm sure that everything I just said, you all understood. So how do you manage it? How do you make it real? Um, how do you keep your operations reliable and safe, knowing all of those challenges and paradoxes and tensions that I just made, that I just mentioned? You rely on your frontline and particularly your frontline leaders. They're your first line of protection and your last line of defense in executing work day in and day out, um, setting the expectations, the resources, the motivation, the understanding, the communication around how to perform work, um, how to keep it on track. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna to talk about the tools and techniques and capabilities and capacities that our, that, um, our frontline needs to be able to execute work uh, safely. So Ralph, do you wanna, how about we start with the black line? Excellent, great idea. So one of the things that David and I have often puzzled over is the, the, the blue line versus the black line and, and why in so many organizations is there such a difference between work as executed um, or, or work as done versus work as imagined or the way I look at it, the way we plan for the work to happen ends up being very different. And as we can see, Sometimes the blue line gets us further away from the hazards. And so we could conclude from that, that maybe we're safer. And certainly that's what a lot of operators would tell you if you had the conversation with them, they'd actually say, but we're making it safer. But the puzzle remains because one of the things I certainly learned from David's research is that when we have a big gap between the black line and the, and the blue line, um, our operation isn't particularly reliable. You know, it's, it's not going the way we thought it was going to go. Therefore, it's probably not resourced the way uh, it, it should be. You know, with, with the organization has provided resources on the expectation that the work would follow the black line and now it's not. So whether or not you're distancing yourself better from the hazards, you are affecting operational reliability. And, and why does that happen? And this is a... This is a hypothesis more than a tested theory. But from our operational experience, we kind of like go, procedures have got very big. Plans have got very voluminous. There's all of this pre-thinking. Um, planning particularly is very distance sensitive. 
You don't want to be spatially too far away from where the action is going to happen. You don't want to be too far away in time. To a plan that's made two, three days in advance does tend to fall into this hole that originally von Mölke, the famous Prussian general, said no plan survives initial contact with the enemy's main force. So let's turn that into operational language. Plans fall apart when we get to the crunch point where all the hazards are. So how do we stop that from happening? Uh, and, and David and I both believe um, that you've got to actually thin out some of these procedures and some of these plans. We've just got to have this honest insight that if we've got a 40-page procedure, it's probably not going into the field with the worker to be read and followed. Um, and if they are reading it before they work, then they better be incredibly intelligent to remember what's written in 40 pages because uh, I certainly can't do it now and couldn't do it 40 years ago. So what's the antidote to this? And this is where David and I came up with this concept of CLEAR, which we kind of stole a little bit from the Nimrod inquiry and, uh, and, and changed it around a bit. We've really got to make sure that whether it's plans or whether it's procedures or even how we document controls, it's got to be concise. It's got to be local ownership. So we've got to be using the language of the frontline workers. And to do that, we've got to engage them in the first place so that they know that this is theirs. It can't belong to management. It can't belong to safety professionals. It can't belong to project professionals. It's got to belong to the workers. They've got to feel ownership of it. It's got to be engaging. And part of it being engaging is that it's easy to understand, um, which also affects accessible. So if it's big and bulky, it's probably not going into the front line, but accessible also means the language that we use. So use the language that the field operators use. And when we say resilient, we actually mean resilient in the classic sense that it's, it's gonna flex, it's not gonna break, it's, not, it's gonna be able to flex and adapt to situations. So the procedure actually has got some capacity for variation built into it because we haven't been overly prescriptive other than where we need to be prescriptive for critical steps. So that's the first thing that we've really got to focus on in order to enable uh, safer work. We've got to think about this triangle of how supervision and the system and the safety of work all interact. Um, so back to you then, David, for the next phase. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ralph. And I think for so long in safety, our focus had been on on pulling the blue line of work, the reality of work, back to you know a fat, messy, unrealistic black line. And it's great to see all of the um, intention around decluttering. And 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 our our picture here is to say um, it's not it's not in any way about pulling the blue line into an unsuitable black line. It's about having a black line that is um, able to be executed. In a reliable, reliable way, with some obvious uh, variability, but at the margins. So we've got these clear plans and procedures, and then the next, I suppose, really important thing is where are the hazards? And we introduced a tool uh, we call the four watts. Uh, it wasn't always four watts. Um, it, sometimes it, you know, if you look at your normal take five, it might be two. What are the hazards? What are my controls? And we found consistently not enough. So maybe by way of story, um, Ralph and I were looking at incident. Um, maybe a decade ago where um, a sort of an excavator, a trencher um, contractor and subcontractor company in the in this in central Queensland in the road reserve dirt road and they were trenching for um, 
for to lay a pipe, pipe series of pipelines. Done the same job for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, they pulled up on their truck. They dropped the excavator off the back. Um, perfectly clear morning. And the operator, first thing they did was raise the boom and um, direct contact with a 11,000 volt swirl line, single strand uh, power transmission line on the side of the road. Now, this group had an 800 page work pack. They just spent 30 minutes doing their pre-start um, routines and, and sign off and checks. And no one in that work group um, identified the hazard of this overhead um, power line. So that's when we, we we puzzled over that and we went, well, actually, we need to help people understand that there's situational hazards and task hazards. So there's hazards in the in the area they're in, uh, just by way of background hazards and, and situational hazards. And there's and then there's hazards that they introduce when they start work that are associated with the task. And we find it very helpful to have a conversation about both of those things. And then we talk about appropriate defenses. We don't worry about likelihood. Likelihood doesn't mean anything at a task level in the front line. It's hazards. And if you've got a hazard, you need to have defenses. And one defense is, is generally not good enough. So we, we talk about what the appropriate defenses are. And then the fourth one, which is really important and rarely done well, which is what do we need to do to verify, monitor, and maintain those controls throughout the course of the entire work activity? And whose responsibility is it to do certain verification, monitoring, and, uh, and, and maintaining activities of those controls throughout the work? Um, safety is not something that can just be done at the start of a day and then the work happens afterwards. So Ralph, that should give us an idea of where the red line is and therefore how we make sure we're able to keep the, the blue line away from the red line. And when we implement those defenses, we create this resilience threshold. We create a point in which we know that we're, if we're within that envelope, uh, we can be safe and resilient. So Ralph, I suppose then we've got to plan the work. Yeah, we do. And I think just a very important point before we go to that, that, that I want to stress is you notice that we're talking about hazards and that's very deliberate. We're, we're not talking about risks. And, and I'll give some credit here to, to, to one of my old professors, Professor Ben Flintberg, who was until recently at Oxford and has just secured a very prestigious position at the IT University in Copenhagen. Um, ben, always loved asking senior operations people, which, uh, which was really his focus on teaching. Um, are you better off spending all this time in field operations calculating risk? Or should you be spending that time identifying hazards and working out how to manage them? And that's very much something that David and I focused on uh, initially on this huge mega project. And it made a huge difference, and so much so but one of the things that is maybe a good takeaway is, is risk even a concept that we need to talk about with field workers? Are we better off saying, there's a hazard there, do something about it. Now that you've seen it, make yourself safe. Um, worth thinking about. We've certainly had a lot of success operationally with that concept and uh, be keen to, 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 to see you try it and see how it works for you. So as David correctly said, you know, once you're starting to talk about controls, you're into that space of planning. And, and be very clear that planning as a word covers lots of stuff. And we're quite, this, what, what, what we've learned over time is to separate lots of important stuff as pre-planning and preparation. Hugely important. If you fail to prepare properly, 
can have all sorts of issues. But the planning that we want to talk about here is in the field, operational precast planning. And there's a very simple concept to this, um, which is that if you actually involve the people that are going to do the work, then you are going to save an awful lot of time not having to explain it to them. Um, being in Hong Kong, you often get people talking about Confucius, and one of Confucius's words of wisdom, or words of wisdom generally, was that if you tell me, I'll forget. If you show me, I'll remember. But if you involve me, well, then I'll understand. And so this is very much the point. Involve the team. They're also pretty much experts in the tasks that they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So involving them gets you the expertise. And the process that we very strongly advocate here is SMEAX. Um, if you're Australian, you'll probably know this. Uh, it's been adopted by Australia as the inter-service inter incident management system. So all of the Australian emergency services, ambulance, fire, state emergency service, when there's a flood, when there's a, a, a storm, when there's a bushfire, they coordinate their operations using SMEAX. And what it basically comes from is a, a military briefing, five paragraph order called SMEAC, and it's been used by us operationally as a planning tool, and it, it's an acronym. So S, situation. Do we understand our situation? It dovetails beautifully into the four watts because the four watts actually helps us, helps us understand our situation and our situational hazards in particular. We then start to focus on the mission slightly odd word but the mission is if you like the umbrella under which all of the operational objectives are planned it's the big reason why we're here so um, if we think about restoring power to a network you know an objective could be to fix the power pole but the mission is to restore electricity to the hospital so mission um, gives people this understanding of what they actually have to get done what does the effective endpoint look like? How do we execute it? What are the individual task steps? What are the actions we have to take to establish effective controls, verify, monitor, and maintain them? Who's doing what? When are they doing that? Um, the A is for admin and logistics. So have we got the right paperwork? Have we got the right uh, permits? Uh, have we got the right level of authorizations? Are we following the right procedure? Um, have we thought about logistics? Are, are people turning up at the right time? Is equipment turning up at the right time? Um, my personal favourite, I'm ex-military, have we thought about how we evacuate? Have we thought about how we get a casualty into hospital? Where are we working? And how problematic are these things? Um, the C stands for communication and control. Who's in charge? And it's not about one person being in charge because that creates a, a, a point of failure. It's about the system of control. And then finally, a safety check. Um, do we actually all understand what the controls are? Do we understand what the stop the job triggers are? Have we planned safe holes, a, a place to pull up short as the phase of operation increases in intensity or becomes critical? All of these things should be done with the team in the field, in sight of their worksite. Then you've got a really effective process. So that's SMEAX. David, over to you. Anything yeah, great. 
Did I miss anything there? No, not at all. I think I think really important point. There's toolboxes and there's and then there's uh, there's local, you know, purposeful collaborative pl work planning exercises and and I think this is a real um, game changer for the reliability and the safety of operations. Is uh, is getting that collaborative planning. Supervisor might be smart, um, but the supervisor is not smarter than the whole team um, when it comes to work. So so we do that. And then Ralph, there's an umbrella sort of concept that we use when we talk to frontline teams that very simply, um, we need to know stuff, we need to say stuff, and we need to do stuff throughout the work to maintain uh, the safety and the reliability of the work. Uh, we borrowed this again uh, from um, um, Ralph sort of dug through um, Larry Sen's sort of uh, leadership shadow work, um, which is sort of says that leaders cast a shadow in the organization through the alignment between what they say and what they do. So this is this idea of, you know, walking the talk or don't say one thing and do another. Really important for leadership, really important for clarity in operations as well. We sort of added to say, well, actually, you got to know some stuff so that you know that you're saying and doing the right things. You got to know about the work, the equipment, the team, you know, how are you going to talk about safety? How are you going to talk about safety versus productivity? Uh, how are you going to motivate uh, your, your teams? and let them know what's important around safety. And then what are you gonna do? You know, if you're super, you know, what are you gonna do in the eight, 10, 12 hours you've got? Are you gonna do 10 hours of emails that day? Or, you know, is that is that sort of aligning with what you're saying to your team as, you know, um, being available and, and their safety is, is your most important priority. But also what we'll talk about in a moment is that managing operations everything we're talking about now can't be the responsibility and the burden of an individual role so it's not just about what the leader know and says and does it's about what the what the team collectively know and say and and do so we find that a really useful framework for organizations to be able to get clarity on a single page and work with them to do that clarity on a single page about what do we need to know every day what do we need to say um to each other every day and what are, what are we doing in our individual roles every day um, and and understanding that clearly uh, is hugely valuable so ralph that's um no say do do you want to do you want to say any more about that or are we ready to go yeah. into shaped well just one very small point around it and that is that as as, as david developed this uh, and put it into practice during covid in, in south africa um, one of the very, very uh, beneficial side effects, uh, which is really worth thinking about, is it changed information exchanges from monologue to dialogue. So what do, what do we mean by that? Um, actually, even though it says no, say, do, if, if as a leader you want to understand what the team knows, you start to question them. And when you start to question people, they start to answer, but they also reciprocate and ask questions. So this was the, the very first time we implemented the they say do framework, which I wasn't involved with, but David was, and it's, it's worth sharing. I mean, how quickly did that become just the way in which business is done, David? Yeah, look, absolutely. So, um, you know, one organization had had a few incidents and had said, you know, maybe we need some help and it was COVID and it was, it was on the other side of the world. And I said, well, look, um, we know that to improve safety, Sort of there's a couple of things you can do change the equipment people work with change their work process change the capability of individuals you know there's things like that that directly change the physical safety of the work who is best placed to coordinate 
those um, that equipment, those capabilities, um, those work processes is your frontline leaders. So the best short-term intervention or not intervention, but capability building exercise we can do is, is work with those people that are steering the ship every day in the field. And so, and we're not going to train them because they've been doing that job for 20 or 30, 40 years. So why, is, why are they going to get in front of a webcam and, and, and do training? What we said instead was think about what good leadership looks like. Uh, come with some stories of where you and um, or, or other leaders you know of have displayed really good uh, operational leadership. And then what are the things as a leader you need to know about to be able to lead safely? How do you talk about safety to your teams? And what are the things you do throughout your day to uh, be safe? We prepped them with those questions and we brought them together into one hour learning teams. There are hundreds of hundreds of learning teams that organization has done uh, as leadership dialogues. Ask the people who lead how they lead and um, support them and enable them and coach them uh, to, to do that well. And it was amazing. People had never in their career been asked what they thought uh, good leadership was. They never had had the opportunity to have any conversation with any of their peers or colleagues about safety leadership. Um, the only safety training they'd done was just being talked at um, or sheep dipped in a, in a cultural or behavioral program um, or given a new form to fill out. So I think Ralph, if that's the, um, that was really powerful for us and we've sort of gone on to do that with others as well. Yeah. Good. And we'll touch on that at the very end, this idea of action learning. There's no, there should be no action without learning and there should be no learning without action. Um, I think that's your quote, is it, David, or did you steal that from somebody? No, else? no, it's come from somewhere else. Oh, well, never mind. We won't tell anyone. Okay, so let's talk about shaped supervision. So, um, and I'm going to throw the ball backwards and forwards to you, David, so uh, don't, don't start checking your emails. I might be asking you some questions. Um, so it all starts with this idea that if we're going to plan collaboratively, then let's not stop the collaboration at the planning phase. Let's actually keep the collaboration going. And so the, the, un, the underpinning idea here is that, and David and I have seen this on a number of occasions, unfortunately, where we've been brought in to deal with very serious incidents, fatalities. And one of the, one of the, one of the escalating factors has been the absence of the supervisor, and maybe that's how stuff's got out, got, got out of control. So here's your puzzle. Can you actually maintain supervision without the presence of a supervisor? And of course you can. And the minute you answer that question in the affirmative, you begin to realize that maybe supervision is a set of activities rather than a job. So where we've traditionally seen supervision as the work that a supervisor does, an overseer. Let's get modern with this and actually say, well, it's a set of activities. Doesn't mean that we don't need supervisors. We still need somebody accountable to, 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 to assure the quality of the activities. So somebody's still got to be accountable for the quality of supervision. Somebody's got to be assuring that. And that can be delegated, but the responsibilities of a supervisor remain the responsibilities of a supervisor. He or she has a moral and ethical responsibility to look after their team. They're very sensible to engage their team in it. And so the first thing we actually looked at was seeking diverse opinions, open questions. What do you think? What are your thoughts? You can see it's in the four what's, and you can see it's in the no say do. It should be in everything. 
it, it also means that if we're going to start working, we've got a procedure, let's not see the procedure as, uh, as carved in stone. Let, let's, let's question it. Let's question it and talk about where maybe it's not fitting our current circumstances. So very, very important that this seeking diverse opinions is not just something that the team does with each other, but it's also that the supervisor does with the team. And it goes further, because one of the things that we actually encourage people to do is if you don't know and the team doesn't know, who might? You know, it's a bit like the quiz show where you phone a friend. And, you know, this is where you can actually help operational people realise that safety professionals can be a very, very useful source of information in an operational context. We're stuck or we're worried or we're uncertain about something. Let's ask now rather than find out what we should have done because there's been an investigation. So a very important point, seeking diverse opinions. We then go hunting for hazards. Now, David's already touched on that, but I might just throw the ball back to him because um, David did originally study psychology. And, and one of the interesting things is how does hunting for hazards change, David, when we've got diversity in a team? I think, Ralph, it's this idea of, um, of if, if all of the eyes and, and noses and ears are, are on the lookout, are vigilant, um, um, always, going to, always going to identify more things, always going to see more perspectives on, on, a, on a single situation. An individual's view of the world is only their, their perspective and, and no one can see, uh, have a broad enough perspective of the whole system of work. So, so, hunting, so this is why I think this is such a great activity that the whole team needs to feel responsible for sort of a constant vigilance around hunting for hazards uh, throughout the course of work. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, it's always going to result in, in more being identified and um, more useful perspectives on what to do about them. Yeah. And it's a very deliberate choice of the dynamic word. And we're currently running an in-house leadership program in South Africa, it's the same guys that we originally did no safety with. And the guys there, um, and by guys, I mean men and women, um, they love it because in their own language, relating it to hunting, it's very clear to them. It's, it's a dynamic process. It's get out there, look for it, keep looking for it. You know, a hunt is not, oh, I've seen it now. There you go. It's actually part of a dynamic process. And that takes us to the A of shaped. You know, a, a big role of supervision is, of course, aligning roles and goals. And as, as, as you all know, a big safety issue is when you actually get role conflict, when goals and roles end up conflicting. So central way to deal with this, perhaps traditionally, is through authority. And one person makes the decisions and ensures that there's alignment. What we're advocating is get the team involved. And particularly when we need a level of understanding that we have to become each other's brothers, you know, we become our brothers and sisters keepers. So let your colleague know that at this part, you're going to be really, this part of the job, you're going to be really focused on the task at hand. There's going to be some attention and tunneling. You need them to watch your back. So very practical stuff. We're not talking about theoretical stuff, really grounded down to work stuff. We've already talked about planning collaboratively. Um, executing mindfully, really important. Um, 
Gonna, I'm going to touch on the disciplined access aspect of that, and I'm going to get David to talk about the mindful aspect of it. The disciplined aspect, uh, it's very much changed in my lifetime. You were disciplined execution, or execution had to be disciplined, and it meant stick to the plan. Do what you've been told to do, and that's what discipline means. It doesn't mean that anymore. It can't mean that in the complex VUCA world that we all operate and live in in high hazard industries. What it actually means is that we keep being attentive to whether we've got the right plan. And we've got to be ready to stop the job when things aren't the way we thought they were going to be and deal with it appropriately. And that therefore means that everybody in the team has to be aware of how they're using their own mental capacity and are being attentive to important things. So can I throw the ball back to you on that, please, David? Yeah, Ralph, and, and just briefly, because this is a very big topic and one that's reflected in um, probably um, in, in a not well-informed way in lots of incident reports where we see uh, the person lost their situational awareness or the person was working, you know, working too fast or they lost concentration or they were complacent. And there's lots of psychological uh, processes that go on inside all of us all the time, and we're not machines. Uh, and we, we get through life with a whole lot of biases and heuristics and uh, selective attention and a, a whole raft of things that are built on how we're wired and the experiences that we've had throughout our lifetime. And so when we, when we talk about this with teams, we, spend, we actually spend um, it's almost 20% of the whole time in the program through situational awareness and disciplined execution and helping people and, and leaders understand how how we how we're mindful as 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 human beings and when we're paying attention and when we're not um yeah cool um and that takes us to developing individuals and teams and uh, you know this is that really important point of there should be no action without learning i mean experience is the teacher um, knowledge and wisdom are not the same things. Um, not the same things at all. Uh, if any of you are rugby fans, one of the greatest halfbacks, fly halves of all time, Brian O'Driscoll, was once asked, he was a very young captain of the Lions, I think he was only about 24, and they said, oh, you're very young. Do you actually have the wisdom to be the leader? And he said, well, don't know, but I know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And he famously said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is actually a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. So the big issue here is we are trying to increase the wisdom of those teams. There's no point just giving them knowledge. They have to work out how to apply it. And we'll touch on that at the very end because we'll look at how we use an after action debrief to cement what we've just learned and turn it into practical wisdom. Um, so that's shaped. Um, David, David, to you for stopping okay. the job. Yeah, so so here we go. So stopping the job. So we know there's, well, we talk about it a lot in safety. You know, everyone has the responsibility to stop work if it's unsafe. Lots of assumptions there that people know when something is unsafe. People know how to safely stop it. People know what's going to happen when they do stop and people know, well, what does it mean for the work going forward and what does it mean for me? And in research that, that, that I've been involved in and we've done around this is these are very complex questions and it's very 
um, unfair for us to just say, well, why didn't that person stop that work? It was clearly unsafe. So what we do in, in this, if we want to do that, and you'll see those points in the blue line where that blue line is, is approaching the hazard and approaching our safety margin, our resilience threshold, we, that's where we want the work to be stopped and replanned and recorrected and set on a trajectory away from the hazard. So that's what we call um, stopping the job. Now to do that, two very important um, concepts that I want to talk about. We talk about safe holds and stop the job triggers. If you want people to stop work, then you need to plan for that stoppage to happen at the start of the work. So you need to be very clear on what are the safe holds? So what point in this job are we gonna just take a pause? It might be before a phase change of work. So after we've done the isolation, we're gonna stop. We're all gonna verify it's in place. We're all gonna reframe, refocus on the, the next phase of the work. And we're gonna have an intentional stop at this point. So a safe hold. Or it might be after four hours or six hours, or it might be a whole range of other reasons why we might plan to say, let's just take a break. Um, uh, CRO once said to us, he goes, you know what? I think if we put a safe hold into every single task every single day, we will be much safer and much more reliable rather than just powering through every job every day. Um, and I think there's a lot of, lot of wisdom in, in, the, in that application. And then we also talk about a concept called stop the job triggers. And this is where that line is right on the resilience threshold. It's like, if these situations occur during the course of this work, we will stop. Um, if a gas detector goes off, we will stop. If we're excavating and we strike rock or, or something, we will stop. If, we're, um, if a particular piece of equipment doesn't turn up on time today when we're meant, meant to need it, we are going to stop. And so having these conversations with the team at the start of every single job where do we want to program in a, a safe hold? And what are the conditions or the triggers that we all agree will warrant a stop? Gives, sets an expectation and provides permission to the team to, to do that. But then we need to, we need to correct the work. And so we uh, developed this, this coaching framework um, called Reset Go. Some of you might have heard about that um, being thrown around a little bit. And really important because all of the coaching frameworks that I'd been working with in safety and also, um, you know, before Ralph, Ralph came at the start of this year to me and said, you know, this coaching, the coaching frameworks don't work in operational environments because they don't manage the risk of the change. Um, and we always have to manage the risk of the change. So I said, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, you're using the, I was using the grow model or we were using the grow model in another program. And, and the example that we tell is like, okay, goal, reality, options, will most popular widely used business and sporting coaching framework um okay well i've got to do this job um what's my goal well to complete this job by the end of the shift oh what's the reality oh, i've only got two hours left in my shift if i go and get a permit or isolate this then there's no way i'm going to get it done in two hours okay what's my options okay well i could just i could work live and get it done i've done that before okay uh, my will my motivation well yeah i'd like to be out of here on time in two hours so perfect. Okay, I'll work live. I'll get it done. Um, so coaching frameworks that have an overriding focus on on goal attainment uh, and not an overriding focus on risk management are dangerous in our operations um, because then we've got we've got all sorts of change going on and 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 adjustments to work going on. Um, you know that are potentially creating more risk. So reset go is very simple. It start the first three res is similar to what I just said in grow. Review our circumstances. Explore our potential solutions. Select the plan of action. We can tie it back into our, our SMEACS collaborative planning process. 
but then two very important risk management checks get done. Establishing defenses and safeguards. If we select this plan of action, we're back into the four watts. What do we need to establish to, to manage that the new hazards or the changed hazards? And then the test, test and verify assumptions. What assumptions have we made with this replanning? You know, a particular piece of equipment or a particular isolation or a particular capability of the team and test and verify all of those assumptions and then go back to work. So as a coaching framework, it can be used all throughout operations and all throughout safety, not just stopping the job, but providing feedback, correcting, um, reviewing a process, a whole range of ways. Um, Ralph, over to you. Excellent. Very good. And you know, you can see that clear bolt on of David's safety uh, work um, in the E and the T and uh, the stuff that I've learned through studying coaching. So we find it works very well. Um, and people like it because it can, you can have a five minute conversation with it, or you can have an hour long conversation with it. It's very adaptable. So the last part of this process is that we need to do after action debriefs. Um, we kind of stole this from the military after action reviews. Um, in practice, we thought a review was a bit too top down, wasn't consistent with all the other stuff. So we decided that we'd turn it into a debrief. In other words, the leader isn't sharing their opinion, they're asking questions. And um, we continued stealing stuff from the military. One of, our, one of our big clients is the Australian Defence Force, and the Army in particular used sustain, improve, fix as their after action um, debrief method. Uh, and well, we've adapted it to make it even easier for the field guys because they're at the end of the shift, they don't want to be standing around for long, they want something short, they want something sweet, they want something positive. So we encourage the question of, right, can we find three things that we need to keep doing or do more of, sustain? Are there a couple of things that we think we could improve? Not necessarily committed to improving them. They don't have to be practical. This is idea generation. And is there something that we need to fix? So um, this gets habituated over a period of weeks and it becomes a good habit. And the one thing that you actually have to do is make time for it. If it's important, make time for it. That this only takes five to 10 minutes. So it's not about creating paperwork and it's about the supervisor actually turning around and owning the stuff that needs to be fixed, which reinforces her or his leadership because they're actually doing stuff for the team. Straightforward. Now, um, we've pretty much done the time that we wanted. We wanted to leave at least 15 minutes for questions. Um, this program, this, this all becomes part of a program that David and I uh, co-developed and, and deliver. And we deliver it over 12 weeks as an action learning program that's digitally enabled. And I'm not going to turn this into a pitch. If you're interested in that or other of our programs, go to the Safety Futures website, have a look. Um, also, if you if you're connected with David, particularly on um, uh, LinkedIn, uh, we just recently put some information out about the quality of learning uh, that we're experiencing using digitally enabled platforms because um, the World Economic Forum did its own research. We're a really interesting time and space in learning because digitally enabled action learning programs in particular are proving to be far, far more effective than classroom-based. And the difference from the World Economic Forum stats are uh, 
retention of five to 10% classroom-based, knowledge retention in the high 60s using these methods. And it's this idea of little and often. So that, that's enough of the pitch. Go to our website if you want to learn more about the program. Um, David, uh, anything you want to say before we leave it open to questions? Yeah, I think I'll just reinforce what um, what I think we've we've done in the last year or or two, based on the last decade of leadership training that 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 you've been delivering, Ralph, and aligning it with um with sort of what's going on in safety science and human and organizational performance. To go, actually, we can talk all we want about black lines and blue lines and all this stuff as as, as safety leaders, but um, what we really need to do is put tools. And, and capability and capacity into the hands of the people who need to make it work. And what I think we've, we've established here, or what I'd like to say that we've established here is a um, fairly comprehensive system of work that can manage the, these things that we talk about when we talk about human and organizational performance and the gap between work as imagined, work as done, and, uh, and maintaining resilience, reliability, and safety in our operations. So it's lots of fun to see the hundreds of people that um, come through and go, oh, okay, now this is how all these pieces fit together. Um, and it's particularly good when we fit it into an organization's existing processes. They've already got a pre-task briefing process. They've already got um, some sort of framework and they go, you know what, we can improve this and improve this and improve this and adopt this and, and bring it all together um, in the front line where people are exposed to the hazards. So, um, all right, Ralph, let's see. Um, Let's see what questions we get. I'm not sure the question process. There's nothing in the Q&A um, and there's not a lot of questions in the chat, as far as I can tell. Well, there, there is actually. Um, oh. it's, a, it's, it's a question that's landed in the chat. So Bryce has said, great session and coaching operational frameworks, given the appetite for metrics and measures at a senior level of organizations, how can we demonstrate the need and or the benefits of a program that is largely and rightly at an operational and supervisory level, particularly when leaders, senior leaders may not have been exposed to things like that at capacity and index and the value of learning. Hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, look, I think um, it's a great question, Bryce. Um, I don't wanna be blunt. But I just say senior leaders need to get their head um, in the game of operations um, if that's the type of organization that they're running. And, and um, if they're worried about metrics as, and measures as opposed to the capability of their frontline operations and the capacity of their frontline operations, then we've got a job as safety professionals to reorientate um, their focus, I think, rather than try to um, satisfy it. I don't know, Ralph, you've been a CEO before. Um, yeah, would, yeah. It was very interesting. I, I, in Australia, I ran an ASX top 200 company. And at the time, uh, which I didn't know, and so somebody from, the, from a journalist made the point that I was the only CEO of those 200 companies that actually had an operational background that had come up through operations. Uh, and that's not changing enough, in my view. Um, the operations has always been the poor cousin to finance. There's more... CEOs that are ex-CFOs than there will ever be operation directors being appointed to CEOs. Todd Conklin, uh, working with David recently on a, on a program that I uh, was also sort of brought into to add some grey hair and hopefully wisdom to, um, was doing something I found really fascinating that I would have instinctively said was the wrong thing to do. 
but they were focusing on managers and leaders to change their safety philosophy. And for me, a penny drop that we actually have to change the philosophy and we have to go back to basics and we have to help people understand that if you can walk across a frozen lake on thin ice and it doesn't break, that doesn't mean you were safe. So why would we assume that just because we actually haven't had an incident, we've been safe? So you actually have to educate senior leaders and you may be lucky and you may be dealing with senior leaders that are um, heavily focused on operations. And that was certainly the joy I had of working with David um, the first time. And, I, and, I, and it left me with this naive belief that all safety professionals and all senior executives in Australia would be the same. Well, they weren't. But you have to patiently, just as we actually now recognize that there's an internal rationality that drives the decisions of operators, we have to recognize that there is an internal rationality that drives the decisions of senior executives. And we need to work with them to change that. And what we're finding that if you actually take them through action learning, then here's the wonderful thing, they learn. So um, we haven't yet developed it because we tend to do it bespoke. But one of the things that we intend to launch next year is a program for senior executives and boards so they can actually understand the practical realities of building capacity and capability into the organization for safety and make sure they understand that this has got great operational benefits in terms of quality and cost as well. So I said a coaching conversation this morning with Matt or David who sends his regards and his, his business is killing it, not just in safety metrics, but also in cost and quality. And um, which is pleasing because we did say it would happen that way and it has. So educate, don't get frustrated, be patient. Okay, I can see the chat now, Sarah. Do you want me to, are you happy for me to keep going down the questions? Okay, yeah. great. So thanks, Julia. There's a question about the importance that, that I, or we place on third-party site inductions completed prior to attending site, which are often generic um, ticking boxes. Look, um, Ralph mentioned that anything that happens at a distance uh, becomes very quickly unuseful um, um, for understanding the operation. So work with some companies that, that do job safety analysis and operating procedures in Asia for an offshore um, drilling, well, sorry, production facility that's halfway around the world. So someone that's never even set foot or laid eyes on the workplace who's developing JSAs as part of work packs. So all I'd say, Julia, is that um, I wouldn't believe anything that is done prior to the day of the operation. Um, any plan, any induction, anything. And if you're an operational leader in that environment, you've got to assume that um, that things that have been done may not may not match this may not match what you need on that day. Anything to add, Ralph? Perfect statement. May yeah. it rest. Um, um, I think um, Sarah's Margot. Sarah's going to. Um, um, distribute the webinar recording and the podcast. If you come on our program, we've also got, it's a, there's a book shape supervision by Ralph and I, 200 and 230 pages. Um, you get that on the program. Um, if we get around to it, you might be able to get it on Amazon at some point as well. Um, we often forget that titles don't mean the person is an expert in every aspect of the business. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Good point, Gordon. Um, and I think it goes back to that point is, um, you know, as an individual, you've always got to be um, be cautious of anything that you, any conclusion that you come to on your own. 
um, you know, you should be very cautious of that. Um, and that's that seeking diverse opinions, the, the first, that first um, activity of a group. We should always question our own, our own expertise and also, you know, find different sources of, uh, of, of opinions for others' expertise as well. Um, Ralph, anything you want to add? It doesn't look like we've got any more questions that no. I can see. It's good. Hopefully we haven't droned on at you too much. Um, when Generally, when we're doing stuff like this on our own programs, we put a lot of emphasis on breakout rooms and getting people's contribution because, and I think that goes in very nicely with the, we often forget that titles don't mean the person is an expert. Um, but we actually, I actually don't think we forget that one as much, Gordon, as the fact that the, the, the women and men that are doing things on a daily basis, you know, become the skilled workers. And being a skilled worker is about expertise. And so it's very illogical to train people that have knowledge. It's much better to facilitate their learning and doing that cooperatively in groups so that they're doing a lot of the talking. Facilitation is a stronger learning mechanism than instruction. Does us all well to remember that. Yeah, okay. particularly frontline leaders. And there's a last question there from Margot about getting safe to be, safety to be part of the work, not just the start of the day. I think what we sort of hopefully shared in terms of a system of work is if we if we have things that are clear, so things that are that are usable and locally owned uh, in the workplace, we have good engaged planning processes. They, this consistent understanding and expectation that we're hunting for hazards throughout the course of the day, planning these points in the work where we have safe holds and um, and and maintain and verify our controls. You know, when things are uncertain, when things deviate, we have reset go conversations as a team. You know, what we're trying to do is put these practical tools in the hands of your operations so that they, they so that Margot, so that they, so the team, for it to be part of the whole work, not just the start of the day, it has to be something that the team have and hold as part of their work. Um, yeah. Which is and I think adding to Margot's uh, question, is that when, when as a team you intelligently think about what the work system looks like. So, so part of what you have to educate your leaders on, your frontline leaders, is you, we've got to break away from just the task focus. The task is part of the activity system, the work system. So once you've got everybody focused that that work system has got rules applying to it, it's got stakeholder pressures applying to it, it's got different relationships impacting on it, it's got different tools, um, when we start to be sensitive to the fact that there's more than just the task going on, we can start to pick spots where it would be good to take a quick break. So if you're about to re-energize a system, pull up short, talk about it. If you're about to do a, a, a heavy, complicated lift um, with an added element of danger because you're lifting 10 tons over an active chlorine pipe, you know, what an excellent moment to, to spend five minutes stopping. And I think part of it as well, Margot, is um, examine the undue emphasis we put at the beginning, because we, we've, in many organizations, we've made the beginning about getting all of the safety paperwork sorted. Well, stop doing that and make safety something that goes throughout the work system. Give people, give people notebooks that they can write things down in rather than forms where they can pick boxes. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, do you want to um, 
do a look forward? How do you, um, back to you, I guess. Um, yes, well, I've, I've shared that link um, to your <coughs> Safety Futures website. And um, just a reminder that, yes, the, the, the recording and the podcast, which is useful for some people, will get emailed later today. Emails do go to spam. That's why people often email me after saying, can I have it? But um, I put my email address there if you, if you um, want to be sure. And um, we uh, haven't um, quite got the details for next week's webinar yet, but I do think David might be speaking again. Um, and um, so uh, stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, uh, great webinar, guys. Some great feedback. So we'll um, leave it there. And um, thank right. you for joining us. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye.